2: The year is 1987. And what is your pleasure, sir? Pain or podcast? The movie Hellraiser.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson.
2: And I'm Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we're trying to find the best movies of all time. And when we do, we are sending them into outer space. And Amy, this list that we have been building to go to outer space, we spent a whole episode breaking down our last season. What do we want to put on the list? And we wrestled and we bartered. And then we also threw it to our listeners. What did they want on the list? Where did we get it wrong? Where did we get it right? And uh, I think the votes are in because the first question we asked was, would you put Starship Troopers or RoboCop on the list? Now, I'll just tell you, if you forgot where I stood, I really liked RoboCop. And then based on our conversation, I was like, but maybe Starship Troopers is a more realized version of what he really wanted to do. So I was really wrestling. I was going back and forth between them both.
1: And I was sticking up for Robocop. I was like, Robocop is just a flawless film. I think that Starship Troopers reaches farther and maybe doesn't make it all that way. And so that we put it out to a vote. And I, I, I feel so torn and conflicted now. The votes came back. The votes were very solid for Robocop. Technically, I won. Suddenly, I feel like I lost because I came around to your point of view on Starship Troopers. I started to think, you know what? I want to see an ambitious mess on this list. It's okay if it's Denise Richards on this list. And. We kind of floated that idea, like, what if we put Starship Troopers on and took off the other war satire, Doctor Strange Love? And I suddenly loved that idea. Like, why isn't our war satire a modern one and not from, you know, the Cold War? And and the votes have
2: spoken. But now I am so sad that I pushed so hard for RoboCop. Well, I got to say, I came to your side as a little gift of the Magi here because I, my gut was RoboCop, but my my highfalutin thought was Starship Troopers and if we want a brilliant mess on this list I still will uh, fight when we get to this day to put the room Tommy Wiseau's <laughs> the room on here because I do believe it belongs here uh, the other vote that was out uh, for discussion was Blair Witch or Texas Chainsaw Massacre now this is a tough one because I think we both really liked we liked both of them we really did like both of them um, and my origin is
1: very important.
2: Yes. Um, and, you know, look, we're pitting movies that shouldn't even really be pitted against each other. Like, there should be room for all of this, but we're not making a hundred best horror movie list. We're making, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be really selective in what we're putting. And the votes came back in once again, uh, very heavy, one-sided almost, uh, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh,
1: there's there's pleasure and pain, man, because I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I was pushing for the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. I know it doesn't have quite that vaunted place in history because we now consider found footage movies to be sort of embarrassing. And like, I think they're just so recently bad in our memory that we don't care that the Blair Witch did it first and did it best. I think did it best forevermore. Did it so good nobody else has ever done them quite as good. Yeah, but, you, <laughs> oh, I love that movie. I love that movie. And I will. I guess I can keep loving it in my heart.
2: But as we were talking here, the other movie that people brought up multiple times that we didn't put to a vote was The Exorcist. We kind of just flew right by The Exorcist. We didn't really talk about it that much. We, I think, mentioned it briefly. Um, and I did wrestle with that one. And I think, for me, I didn't lean into The Exorcist for a couple of reasons. One, I felt like it was expected, and there's something about this list that we're making where I think we are trying to go against the grain, right? It's the reason why we did uh, Porco Rosso instead of uh, Princess Mononoke, right, you know, in the sense of, yes, people have already talked about that one. Maybe we could try something different. Let's go in a different direction, and not to say that we do that all the time, but I think it is fun to explore lesser known works and bigger works. And we'll get back to Miyazaki, of course, but... Right, because for I, me, like, I, the, way yeah. I, the
1: way I think of it too is like, there's a way of rewriting history if you only immediately cite the biggest work where you forget about the lesser known ones.
2: Yes. And, and, and like
1: it, and like what we've seen through doing this list is that what is considered the best is dynamic and that a film that was forgotten can like ascend later if enough people remember it and talk about it and well, promote it. And yes. I find that just interesting because like if we just reduce every director to like their number one hit, then we forget about everything else they
2: did that was great. Which is why I know, and you've been talking about this since day one, that you want always on the list. You said, you know, that's Steven Spielberg's best movie. <laughs> and you're yeah, kick like- kick them I, all
1: off the list. He <laughs> came on with six. We'll get them all, I'll trade them all for
2: always. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was someone came after me and I, and and Devin and uh, Josh, please pipe in on this one. I made a I I made a, Comment that I still stand behind. I said I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that says that Boogie Nights is not in the top two of their favorite PTA movies. And people are on the Discord were like, What the hell is he talking about? Boogie Nights is not in the top two. It's not even the top, (gasps) you know. Like people were really shitting on Boogie Nights. I'm like, am I wrong on this? And like people like Licorice Pizza number one. And I, which, you know, is hey, look, it's valid. In my opinion, I was always like, you might have your favorite PTA, and then I think Boogie Nights might be right behind it. Like, and there's been moments for me where Magnolia has been my favorite, and then I've switched it up. And, uh, you know, I I really love them all, but I always feel like Boogie Nights stays kind of firmly in that top two, three, given, uh, uh, like, of longevity, Boogie Nights has stayed more cemented in the top than the others, in my opinion. I 100% agree. You're not wrong. I have your back on this. I mean, or do people not? I mean, Devin and and Josh, Do am I I'm wrong? I'm very that, perplexed yeah. by that. I'm perplexed to hear yeah. that someone wouldn't consider that one to be up in his top upper echelon. I mean, it's a movie that I mean, just the cast alone in it. Yeah. All people that if you hadn't seen them before that movie have all gone on to be in thousands and thousands of movies. It's like a seminal thing that he made there. And it's, an, it's I, I actually think it's an interesting movie. We were talking, I think, right before we started recording this podcast, like about that movie Blonde. I haven't seen it. I don't, I don't think a lot of us have seen it. Uh, but I've the, seen it. You've seen it. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the things that people are saying about that is, is it exploitive? And I think that to make a movie about the porn industry and not have it feel exploitive, but really about this kind of family and this community and, and done with love is... But also with some darkness is also... Just a sign of very good writing, too. I, I think that that movie is, uh, at points exciting and 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 it, it kind of pulls you it's a real epic film i yeah i don't know Look, i just think I mean, it's a yeah. boogie nights is a top two pta film for me it's probably is yeah. my number two but i if i i can understand why it wouldn't be just because it's a, a filmmaker with a lot of great films so that people might
0: if you're right. somebody who like i really love magnolia and the master and phantom thread and boogie nights as at number four and i still love it i i that's not like a crazy right point of view to me I think it's crazy.
1: I think it's crazy. It, (laughs) it, it, It just, here's why. Because PTA is a guy who, you know, is known for being able to pull off just like such a range of tones and moods to do comedy and drama and like intellectual history stories. His eclecticism, I find just fascinating when you look at the arc of his career. And all of the things that you love about him are in Boogie Nights. So if you love his dramatic side, it's in Boogie Nights. If you love his funny movies, that's in Boogie Nights. Like if you love his men filled with rage, that's in Boogie Nights. If you love the way he captures a time period, that's in Boogie Nights. It is everything that he like goes on to do with more like specificity later. I think that we talk about that. Whatever movie of his you love, you have to love Boogie Nights by default.
2: And I think we talked about this in the episodes uh, as well, but that's Wes Anderson. That's the argument that we made for Grand Budapest Hotel. That's the argument we we made mm -hmm. for Fargo. Right, yeah. Everything is, in a way, in there. And they go off to explore different things. doesn't mean that any of those things are less. But the DNA, the original DNA with the full, you know, it's it's a, you know, it's a, I, I kind of view it as like a, a map of the United States. Like, you get to see the whole map, and sometimes they'll just do a movie about, like, New Jersey, right? And then that's okay. You still know the full map is out there, but this movie is just about New Jersey. It has an element of that full map picture, but it's not the full. You know, I think that that's okay. Yeah. That's that's great. I'm all for it. But, I, yeah, I think that there's something about that. Because I think some of these movies, if they come first or last, are like, I may not ever get to make another movie again. So you throw it all there. And I think that that's definitely what you feel like with PTA in that movie, it was like I'm doing it all. Hard Eight had its, you know, kind of weaselled its way through, but you feel like there was a, everything was left on the field for that. Yeah,
1: because I guess I feel like if you love There Will Be Blood and The Master best, you know, his like epic ones, then it's almost like you don't love the full PTA because mm. he's he's more of he's more than that. He's more yeah. than the emotions. I think those
2: movies are. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, Phantom Thread, you can make an argument that that yeah. kind of encapsulates a lot of things.
1: It, um, does, but it doesn't have his power to direct a full, complicated ensemble.
2: I, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And that's why you nailed it. All right. So we will be making these corrections to the list. The list is ever changing, ever evolving. We will put uh, RoboCop on the list. We will put Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the list. And um, we will not be putting Exorcist on the list. Do we even get into why we wouldn't put it on the list? Oh, because we were trying to avoid the common thing. I also think well, that there are better movies out there than that.
1: I do. I, I really deeply love The Exorcist. I, me I think too. the conversation we had on it was so wonderful. But it didn't pull me to put it on in, with the same insistence. And I yeah. thought that was interesting. I, I expected it to. I kind of expected yes. when I made my list, I would put it on. And then I just didn't feel it. Kind of like when we didn't want to put it on Alien or Aliens. It didn't pull the way that I thought it would. It has its great place in the culture, but I didn't feel like we needed it.
2: I, and there's there's arguments to be made, and we can always go back and look at things again. People were very upset that I even suggested to get rid of Twelve Angry Men, but then that <laughs> opened up another conversation. There are definitely more
1: than Twelve Angry Men mad at you.
2: Yes, one hundred percent. Men, women, children. Uh, you know, and my cat. And lot... My
1: cat wrote you a strongly worded tweet,
2: <laughs> misspelled. Nut. But you know what? I was impressed with their finger control. I mean, it's hard to type on those uh, iPhones. Um, so, Amy, what else do we have to discuss before we get into our film today?
1: Well, one brief thing we have is that our brilliant producer, Josh, went through the list as it stands now, as of oh, yeah. what we have on the list. And he did a really good breakdown, which of just like by decade, by genre, by category. And I want to just touch on a couple of things really fast that I thought were interesting. One, Starting with the 1900s and going every decade since, we actually have a film represented. We've got one film from the 1900s, one from the 1910s, two from the 20s, four from the 30s, seven from the 40s. Way to go, 40s. Nine from the 50s, eight from the 60s, 11 from the 70s, seven from the 80s, 10 from the 90s, four from the aughts, four from the 2010s, and so far zero from the 2020s. Uh but I appreciate that. I was like, okay, good. We have every decade represented. Uh some are slightly stronger than others, but there's no runaway. I felt like when we got the AFI list, it was like there were three real decades on it and everybody else just kind of settled for scraps. So that makes me happy. I like um, that. And then he when he did his genre breakdown, the one thing that I was like absolutely stunned by is, you know, he like went over and he's like, "Okay, we've got like five silent films, two film noirs, two superhero films. We only have one documentary." We only have one animated film. And you know what we don't have at all? And this just stunned me. What? We have no war films. And we have no Westerns. We succeeded in taking all the war films and the Westerns off. And I just assumed we still probably had one or two. But we actually have zero. And I'm trying to figure out how I feel about that. Is it okay to have, like, well, didn't the AFI feel like it had 30 war films and, well, like I 50 think that westerns? We, and... we may
2: have done an aggressive course correction. And there are <laughs> movies that I would like to go back and, you know, think about. I often think that I get it wrong on High Noon. But, you know, it, it's back to this exorcist problem, which is, what are the movies that, like, speak to me that I come back to? Like, we we didn't put Platoon on the list. I mean, that's a war movie. Is that on the list?
1: No, I think we took Platoon off the list.
2: Wow. Uh, It's interesting, you know, but we've also held spots for like Born on the Fourth of July and we haven't there's Westerns that we haven't done yet. There are, you know, like like Stagecoach. We have chances to go back. I think part of our. Issue with this list or part of our want is we know we have more to explore, so we're not rushing to be like, well, yes, we're putting this on. And I think if we come back to it later on, we can. Everything's up for debate. Every movie that we've ever watched is still up for debate, in my opinion. Uh, if, if one of us wants to bring it in, uh, I just but I wanted don't feel to announce like i missing
1: that it. as like as as a as a fascinating thing that we have all accomplished together, which is it's almost like we sanded the floor and now we get to rebuild.
2: Uh, By the 100%. way, we have four
1: musicals and five horror films. That's where we're at right now with there.
2: I, and, I would say our uh, biggest we,
1: category is like well dramas, which is like hard to deal with. Comedies, we actually some solid comedy comedy dramas, and we have eight sci-fi films, which may be too much. We might have to look at that and one animated. Only one animated, which I think is another so, big challenge.
2: And we're going to get back into a lot of different things. There's obviously there's so much time to spend on anime. And the fact that we haven't put a Pixar movie on there, which you could argue is insane. But maybe we haven't found the right one yet, you know, uh, or Disney movie. I mean, like there are there's a lot to go. And I know your your favorite um Oh my gosh! Uh, Monsters vs. Aliens. You want a DreamWorks on there, right? <laughs> like you want uh, you want one of those. Uh, but you I mean, know, you can
1: expect me to make a push for Fantasia. I love Fantasia.
2: I'm down. Like push all you want. All right. Uh, and I'm not against that. I'm not saying like try me. Uh, but no, this is actually it's been fun. The list is always an interesting argument. But if you have any problems with what we didn't put on the list, go back and listen to the episodes because the episodes is where the real conversation is happening. And as we kind of continue our housekeeping here, I do want to bring up uh, the reaction to Midsomar. So far, it's been great to read everybody's comments. I think a few people were surprised that we didn't really, like, <laughs> I think I, I'll speak for myself. You can chime in and tell me if you felt the same way. People are like, you really didn't acknowledge that she was, like, indoctrinated into a cult at the end of that movie. Like, you just kind of said, like, she was embraced by a bunch of people. And I was like, you know what? Maybe that was me. <laughs> Just feeling happy that she found a place. And and it started making me think about like toxic relationships and this idea like, well, she was in a toxic relationship. And then she was brought into this other group that appeared to be friendly, but also could be toxic. It was like, are all relationships toxic if you are not one with yourself? If you are not full and you're looking to somebody else to kind of fill you up, well, are you just... Ready to be put in a toxic relationship. So where the movie feels like it's condemning those things. Do we also miss the larger idea of cults? Yes and no. I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't look at them as being that bad. Uh, I mean, of course they are, but it was funny. Like I was like, oh yeah, 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 of course that's a cult. They're killing people and, and, and maybe eating people. I mean, yeah.
1: Well, but you know what? They're not, there is no cult leader. I, I feel like it's when you have a cult leader that things go really bad. It's a cult okay. democracy. So maybe, okay. it's, maybe it's okay. It's a cult family. And the Manson family had a leader. They don't have a family. They're, they're, they're a leaderless, fatherless, loving family. So maybe and things will
2: work out great. I, look, I, I'll be open to it. Let's see, you know, if we, there was a sequel, we could make a judgment on their cult status. But I'll say one other thing that was talked about a lot on the boards was uh, people started hypothesizing that um, Florence Pugh's parents were actually killed by that same uh, group, that cult, Uh, which we won't call them. Yeah. And um, that has been a popular online theory because there are some flowers in their bedroom that were reminiscent of the flowers that were in Sweden. But when Ari Aster was asked about that, he said, I can definitively tell you, no, that is not right. I appreciate Uh, his clarity
1: on that because... Bad things can just happen at random. Not everything has to be tied up in a I, J.J. I Abrams been, yes.
2: Marvel puzzle box. No, I I think that would have made <laughs> the movie way cheaper in a way. Like, yeah. you know, the trauma is real. Uh, and then people thought that we took um, uh, we took Christian. We didn't go hard enough on Christian, but I want to ask you a question about this. And then we can get on to our, our episode here. You know, people are quoting the deleted scenes about why Christian was bad. I love that scene that we played in the episode about, you know, you gave me the flowers, it made me feel guilty, that, that that moment. Are we to judge a movie on its deleted scenes? Like, we were talking about the film that we saw, right? There's a director's version, there were deleted scenes, it's all other stuff. Do you, Are you supposed to judge a movie on that? Because I believe that you know, you make changes, you make cuts, you 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 kind of polish your narrative, you kind of polish your structure as you go. There are a lot of things that you might cut that are interesting that you might have thought. But I, I'm a big believer in, as a fan, I like a deleted scene. But as what we're doing here, I got to judge the movie on what I'm watching.
1: Well, yeah, you know, every I, time yeah. I watch a deleted scene, to me, the question is, why was this cut? Not like in a defensive way, like, why was it cut? But like, mm-hmm. they cut it. So let me try to understand why they decided they didn't need it. There's a foundational reason why it's not there. You know, there's a reason why it should be gone. And so I would say for this one, the reason why it should be gone is maybe that wasn't the way he wanted to take the character after all. Like, you never know when you're writing the script to the movie exactly how the actor will play it. And maybe enough will come across from the way the actor plays it that you don't need to hammer home what you think about Christian in this extra scene. You might write things before you understand how fully they'll be embodied.
2: Or, or you feel like, because I feel like what I saw in Midsommar in the director's cut was a lot more hand-holding on the relationships, which I enjoyed because I actually thought the relationships were really well thought out. But I, as a viewer watching it without knowing that those scenes existed, I was like, wow, it's such assured filmmaking that they're letting you kind of Make your own choices about characters. You don't have to be like this character is bad because they do. The-. We saw enough to make some choices, but not enough to be definitively told what to think. And I think that that's something that I, I definitely respond to, you know, as a film fan. Uh, you know, I don't need yeah. to, I don't need to. I don't need to hear every thought, or you don't have to tell me everything about it. Let me make some of my own choices.
1: I agree, and I think that there's something in me that almost makes that movie more scary and unnerving and relatable is because like, I've never had a conversation like the deleted one, you know, like you bought me flowers and it made me sad, but right. I've had moments with like, you know, relationships with my, with like boyfriends or even with like female friends. What thought you were
2: about to say with my cat. But,
1: and my cat. <laughs> we have a very complicated relationship. Um, Where like little things hurt your feelings and you can't tell if you're crazy that it hurts your feeling. And for that, Mm -hmm. for the movie to be so based on those kind of scenes in the beginning, like, am I being too sensitive? Are they being nice? How sincere is this gesture of him saying, I won't take mushrooms? That stuff where you don't know how to feel is how it feels to to feel anything when you're in relationships. Like the questioning of it. And so when he comes out and is like, I feel this and I don't like you in a deleted scene, it's less relatable to me because like. I haven't been there, but I've been everywhere else in this movie.
2: I I totally agree. And I think that, like, it's so hard to capture those, like, little moments where, like, what makes a relationship interesting? Like, you know, like, or or what is the fraying point of a relationship? Because they're sometimes so personal and to an outside eye. It's so hard to tell. I think this movie does a good job of letting you see kind of both Sides of it without it being definitively on one side or the other.
1: Well, then, shall we get into a relationship that's more twisted and
2: amended? Let's do it. Amy, twist the box. It's time to unspool it. The year is 1987. The Simpsons first appear in a short clip on The Tracy Ullman Show. President Reagan tries to unify Berlin in his request for Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. Aretha Franklin is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Prozac makes its debut in the U.S. And this year's unspooled films are Fatal Attraction, Raising Arizona, Robocop, Princess Bride, and now Hellraiser. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? I want to hear it all.
1: (laughs) It is the first, and I would say best, film that was written and directed by the horror writer Clive Barker himself, based on his own novella, The Hellbound Heart. The studio made him change the name from The Hellbound Heart because they thought... The Hellbound Heart sounded like it might be a romance film and send people in the wrong direction. Um, But the story is that a bad, very selfish man named Frank has been wandering the world, snatching at all of its pleasures. He does stuff like sleep with his widower brother, Larry's new fiance, Julia, uh, before they're even married. And when that is not enough, he tracks down a mysterious puzzle box that promises to give him sensations he has never before felt, which... Is true, because when he opens up the box in the very first scene of the movie, all of these, like, tormented-looking, black-leather sadomasochists come out. Their name is the Cenobites. They burst out of this box, and they tear him apart with dozens of tiny hooks, and then he dissolves into his family's attic. But... All is not lost for mean old Frank if he can convince Julia, his brother's wife, uh, who is now living in this same house and is still totally obsessed, sexually like, obsessed with him, that if she can bring him people to kill in this attic, he can rebuild his body and they can escape eternal damnation from the Cenobites. Uh, Frank is played by Sean Chapman when he has skin, and he's played by Oliver Smith when he does not have skin, which is much of the movie. Uh, Julia is the great Claire Higgins. Andrew Robinson plays poor dumb Larry, the husband who has no idea any of this is going on. And as Ashley Lawrence plays Kiersey, Larry's grown-up daughter from his first marriage, and she might be the only one able to send the Cenobites, who are headed by Doug Bradley as the creature later known as Pinhead, back to hell. Take a lesson.
2: Poor Larry, obedient as ever.
1: Keep your voice
0: down. Don't want babe to hear. You're hurting.
2: You won't cheat me, will you? You'll stay with me. Help me. Then we can be together the way we were before. We belong to each other now. For better, for worse. Like love.
1: Hellraiser was a cheapy movie that was made for less than a million dollars, with the intention that it would maybe go straight to video, but The studio saw their early cuts and realized they had something very deeply disturbing and innovative on their hands, and they decided to give it a real proper theatrical release on September 18th, 1987. Once, they could get their rating down from an X to an R and convince all these countries to stop banning it. Um, The movie did not make an insane amount of money, but it made a major stylistic impact on the genre that then spun into 10 Hellraiser sequels, including one that is just coming out this week, which I have not yet seen. uh, But I hear, no spoilers, harkens back to this one, the OG in a way that none of the others since have truly done. Uh, What gives Hellraiser its power? This is what I really want to get into with you today. But to start, I might say that, you know, because it is a, a kind of a hellbound heart romantic film. Uh, at least it is a film that is about passion and infatuation that leads to catastrophe. Kind of like the number one song on the charts that September weekend in 1987. MJ and I Just Can't Stop Loving You. I
0: just can't hold-
1: Now, Paul, last week we talked about how you were scared to watch *Midsummer*. You weren't sure how drastically it would freak you out. I have always felt the same way about Hellraiser. I only watched it for the first time during pandemic. And it put me into such a dark, strange, disturbing mood that I couldn't get it out of my mind for a couple of days. And when my uh, boyfriend recently asked if I wanted to go see the 87 Hellraiser on a big screen, I said, absolutely not. I don't think I can take it. I find this film so, so disturbing that I thought I would match your disturbing with my disturbing and bring this forth. And then you had never seen it. And then suddenly I felt bad. Like, what have I done making my poor, sweet, innocent Paul watch Hellraiser?
2: And I can say to you, Amy, this movie did not scare me. This movie did not disturb me. <laughs> what? This movie is trash. What? <laughs> trash, what? Amy. Why are we even wasting our time on this movie?
1: What are you of talking all about? Of all the horror
2: movies, this is the one that we picked? Trash. Trash campfire.
1: Have you no soul? Did you give look, yourself to the Cenobites? What are you
2: talking Look, let me just put on one side. Sure. Uh, practical effects were cool. It's 87. I'll put my brain back into that box and we can get into all the coolness of the practical effects. Take all the rest away. This is what for years I was like, Oh, this is going to be a scary thing with this guy with pins around his face. He's barely in the movie barely there. It's some weird movie about a woman, uh, fucking, uh, like a, a flesh man. Yeah. That doesn't disturb you.
1: No. You're just like, women should this be a fucking flesh get... not a thing?
2: Look, this is a How Did This Get Made movie. Uh, hands down, How Did This Get Made movie. I mean, and, and I will say that in, with love. Now, did I enjoy watching it? Sure. Uh, but it it is hilarious. I mean, this movie is just like silly to the max to me.
1: Are you saying that you at all couldn't connect to this idea of like bringing tortures upon yourself, of like choosing to feel pain, of the of the world being a place where you are so sensation hungry that you do fundamentally the act of like what watching a horror film is, bring horror into your life, bring pain into your life. The, the, the mood of this movie didn't affect you at all.
2: Amy, Amy, let me hand you these straws because clearly you're reaching for them. Uh, oh my they, uh, God!
1: Clearly, ten sequels of people wanting to see more of this story because not... they want
2: that fucking nail guy in there. That, that's <laughs> what they want. They want the fucking nail. They want the dude in the shades. They want Butterball. You know, look. I, I will. I, I and I and I want to engage in this movie in a real way. I will say that yes, this movie has an interesting centerpiece, in the sense that the. Freddy Krueger villain, I can understand how in 1987, the way that they advertise this movie is going to be different than what the movie is, because it is a movie that looks like, um, oh, this is another Freddy Krueger. This is a phantasm ball. This is a Jason. Like, here he is, the Cenobite. It's a much more elevated concept, right? This guy gives up his soul. I don't even know willingly. I mean, it's very S and M-y. Uh, which is interesting, you know.
1: Yeah, very but- deliberately. Clive Barker likes S&M clubs, hangs out at S&M clubs. He used to go to an SNM club in New York that was so dark that you weren't even allowed to, have, to drink or do drugs in that club because people were, like, getting pierced on – you had to be, like, totally sober because this Ooh. club was so gnarly and there was, like, blood everywhere.
2: I, I mean, so on that level, that's an interesting point of view. I just think that – I understand how it could be a really interesting, like – Novella, like a short story, like it has elements of it that I'm like, but as a a horror film or as a, I guess maybe is maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Is it a horror? I mean, I'm going in, going, I'm ready, bring it on, Hellraiser, and it just feels schlocky to me. It feels like here's one interesting idea that's very barely explored. Like what you just said, like aren't you into you know into this idea of like bringing pain into a world? And yeah, that's the first two minutes, the pre-credit sequence. Like, I mean, the rest is just, like, weird, possessed, in love, you know, woman, killing dudes to get, like, more flesh for this guy. But it's that
1: same thing. It's that same thing. It's about, like, are you finding pleasure in things that will destroy you? You know, like, that Frank gets this puzzle box, you know, and he gets Mm -hmm. the puzzle box because he thinks it's going to give him feelings and pleasure he's never had. And, and. Then the Cenobites are these people who emerge because they can't, they've been, they don't see even the difference between pleasure and pain. They find pleasure in the pain of being hurt. And that's why they're all dressed in like sadomasochism gear. And it's, and it's the same thing for Julia. Like Julia is obsessed with her husband's evil brother's dick. And his, his dick is her like- it's her puzzle box. It's like her portal right. to pleasurable damnation. And these people are all like grasping at things that give them pleasure, but they will ruin their soul. And and there's something in that just core idea I love. Because like, you know, this movie is coming out in like the 80s where it's just like, I'm a little bimbo and I have sex. And oh no, no, I got stabbed. And it's all like victims. Yes. And this is about people making choices and the choices destroy them. And the agency of that I find so terrifying.
2: Well, I guess- there's a couple things that play for me here too. Look, the the dialogue is bad, the acting is stilted, uh, <gasps> and I feel like, you know, this idea that they had this affair before she gets married to this guy. I mean, that's interesting, right? So she had this affair. This guy didn't stay with her, and now yeah. she has a chance to get him back. Yeah, and she's we, with we her see brother. this glimpse
1: of her that she's like an innocent, right? Like we in the, in a flashback, we meet a Julia who's very innocent. You're Julia, right?
2: That's right. Who are you?
0: I'm Frank. I'm
2: brother Frank.
1: Oh yes. But the Julia we spend time with has already like experienced this and is a lot darker.
2: We don't really understand, and it feels very much like a fatal attraction kind of a movie in the sense that, like, here's this couple who lived in Brooklyn, and now they've moved out to this suburban house, you know, where they're... I mean, the the nonchalant reactions to the maggots in the sink, and, you know, the house is under incredible disrepair. (laughs) Like, like, it also (laughs) is like, what the fuck went on? Like, they walk into this house, like, their move-in day, it's like... No one checked it out. Like they're like, oh, I think my brother was here. Like, what the? F- like logically, this movie is bananas. What? Uh,
1: no. Oh, oh, you made a mistake that will come back later in this episode. No, this is their family house. I know it's Frank their family just house. Had keys. It's like he just had keys. It's like you show up to your cabin in the woods that your family owns.
2: But aren't they moving in? Well, yeah, baby. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like they like they're like I it, like it feels like they were like, huh.
1: But they don't have their that's moving like, van that they're, they're doing that exploratory that mission. Like, you think that it, they should be doing? That's what. Oh, okay. First I, I, oh,
2: I thought that was like the moving van came in later that afternoon. I mean, maybe that's true. Yeah, but, I, but, I,
1: yeah. But <laughs> I mean, they did actually shoot Hellraiser in an actual house. And of part of the story did. of the house where they shot this movie, you know, because they didn't have money to build sets really. So they yeah, shot this movie in a real See house. Ya. And the reason the house was up for sale uh, is that somebody had committed suicide in that house in the garage by like carbon dioxide poisoning. Uh, oh, shout wow. out They're back to, to Midsommar. But shout like out that to house had a vibe already. And so. Right. Yeah.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour. I want to be open to what you're saying, and I like that idea that what you're saying is, you know... Choosing something that will destroy us. That's a theme that is in so much. I mean, you could, again, not to bring it back to fatal attraction, but I didn't finish my point from before, but it's like this idea like, it's a similar idea. He, you know, it's like yuppies are moving from Brooklyn into the country uh, to change up their lives. Uh, for no, we don't know anything really about them. We don't get anything about where their relationship is. We don't get any of the, By the time you had that flashback of her and the brother, it's like, there's so much information coming at you and we have so little to base it on. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, you know, and it's like, I, I have no connection to these characters to appreciate the fall, right? Like, it's like they immediately, it's like, like, I felt like I started, watching this movie 15 minutes in, like, oh, I missed the first act because we just jump right into the second act with that couple. Um, and so I'm like, immediately like, okay, sure. They, do they have a bad marriage? It seems like it. Why is she unhappy? I don't know. They're not going to tell me. And then I'm also like, is she being possessed by this ghouly dude? Because that's kind of he appears to her at first as a ghost, like as an apparition. So I'm like, how much control does he have with her at that point, right? Like, it's like, there's a lot left unsaid. So when you say, like, oh, she makes this choice, like, she's fucking a ghost. Uh, or, I mean, I don't know, an interdimensional being, multiverse, I don't know what, I don't even know what she's fucking. Uh, and so I'm like, I don't feel that it's like a choice of, I'm making a choice of pain and pleasure. It's like, it doesn't seem painful. Seems like pleasure. Doesn't seem like it has any real world consequences. And then it starts to build in this kind of like Clive Barker way. Okay, so now she's like sent out to kill for this man. I'm okay, okay, sure, she hits him with <laughs> a hammer. I mean, like, uh, like, okay, to get that man back together. I don't know, and that's the movie. The movie is just that. They And they have this interesting concept that you discussed in the beginning about this culture of S&M uh, wearing uh, people who uh, equate pain and pleasure as the same thing. And they don't show up until the last, you know, they show up maybe for a moment in the beginning. uh, And then they show up in the end for, like, a final fight scene that is not even really a fight scene. That's like, I'm like, you introduce something that's so interesting and then you don't deal with it at all. You just deal with this, like, kind of very staid, low-budget Lifetime movie.
1: But what they represent when they show up. Like, I just think these characters are so iconic and creepy in what they represent. The the, the, The things that you see that these characters have been through, like the tortures that their bodies have gone through, you know, their necks are flayed open and they have tiny mouths inside of their mouths. It's like, in them, you see this portal to a whole backstory that I feel like you don't even need to explain. And it's just like creepier to see that these people have been there and just to stand and walk around. It's like it's like to me, it's like a horror movie idea of ideas. Okay, and I get your point. There's not that many jump scares. Like the best jump scare is probably when they open a closet and a Jesus statue falls out. I think that yeah. one's so funny. But it's more just about setting a tone and then like ratcheting it up and making you feel uncomfortable. Because to me, Hellraiser. Hellraiser has one really key thing in common with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we just put on the list, which is like when I watch this film, I feel profoundly unsafe. I feel like this is a movie that was made by somebody unsafe. And I feel like I don't know what's happening. Like as an audience member, this movie doesn't feel like it comes with like the bumper rails of, like, a bowling alley that'll keep you from, like, going into the gutter. Like, this feels like a movie from somebody who sees the world in such a upside-down, painful way that, like, to go inside the brain of somebody who made this movie at all makes me feel nervous. And so that that's why, like, when it, it just sets this mood for me. And I go inside Clive Barker's brain, and I don't like being inside his brain. And this movie makes me want to freak out and climb out of my skin.
2: Well, I feel like, again where I'm coming back to is you're doing a lot of work and I know I just said in the beginning of this episode oh I like it when you don't like paint everything out for me but, <laughs> but, but at the same time it's like are they from hell? Are they are they, are they from hell? Because it feels like they are opening a portal to hell. It doesn't like there's not enough that I can even put together like are they being tortured? Are they being pleasured? We understand It's, it's that both this, It's both right. But it's like, I understand this guy, Frank, is like, I loved going yeah. there, but then he fought back. Why did he fight back if he loved being there? Why yeah. did he want to leave there? I don't understand that. So that logic doesn't make sense. That's great. I in, like,
1: in, the book, in the book, Frank thinks when he's going to open the puzzle box, it'll be like a bunch of naked virgins who want to have sex with him.
2: Well, and that's way more interesting to me to be like, okay, but then he finds like this S&M pleasure. But then it's like, well, I need to escape this. And then they're like, well, we want him back. Why do you want him back? You you want him back to pleasure him more? You want him back to penalize him more? Like, what is the, i like, what is going on with these Cenobites that are, you know, these are what the, the pinhead and the rest of the, the crew are. Uh, what are you trying to do here? It's like, because I do like that the, the lead priest, uh, I'm going to call him Hellraiser. I mean, I know he's not that pinhead. Uh, I like yeah. that Pinhead is not Freddy Krueger, that he's not like, hey, what's up? You want to spike? You know, or it's like, you know, like, you know, he's not cracking jokes.
1: Yeah, he's um, he's. I find him to be like unnervingly regal. Like yes. like Doug Bradley said that the main note that Cleb Barker gave him was like, do less, do less, do less. Like your presence alone just standing still
2: is terrifying. You're more powerful. Right. That and I think but I think. As an audience member. While I like that he is not outwardly evil, like not like trying to hurt them, like I don't understand anything about like this motivation. A to get Frank back. Um, I like that they. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about it was that they were willing to. They they were rational enough to be bargained with, right? Because at one point, when the young daughter opens up the uh, the Hellraiser Rubik's cube, you know, she is like, "I'll give you him if you let me go," and they're like all right, we'll take you up on that deal, but better not be lying. And it's like, and they exist in this interdimensional plane. There's a lot of world that, as an audience member, I'm like, okay. Now, I will get into in a little bit, like, yeah.
1: I mean, okay, wait, 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 first,
2: but just on that. Yes, please, please. I
1: I think part of, I think that the Cenobites are, you're right, they're not like Freddy, they're not jokers, they're not tricksters. I think they come from a world that is, Fair, in a strange way, I'm gonna say, it. like, kind of weirdly law-abiding for people who tear people apart with hooks. Like, th- I think their thing is just like, you open the box, you now belong to us. You know, like the way that they, the way that they even explain it to Kirstie. you opened it.
0: The box. You opened it.
2: We came.
0: It's just a puzzle Oh
2: no. It is a means to summon us. Who are you, explorers
0: in the further regions of experience? Demons to summon. And,
1: and so that's just it. Like Frank can't cheat them. Frank can't break the deal. Like it's not personal. He just can't break the deal. And honestly, okay, we'll but say, that's like, but that's, yeah. but
2: that's a weird, that's a weird thing. Like, like just even talk about like the logic there, right? We have this rational person, like in the world of, and again, I'm not trying to re. If I'm in a writer's room and I'm hearing this, I'm pitching and going like, well, at least Rumpel Stiltskin says, I will help you turn straw into gold if you give me your baby, right? There is at least an agreement made. This box has no agreement. Like there, like if he opened the box and then Pinhead comes out and goes, You have a choice. You can experience the greatest pleasure in your life, or, you know, whatever. And and then he makes that choice. And it could be still could be obtuse right like oh he thinks he's going to get all virgins and then he gets this other thing but then he also finds like it's a the hero doesn't make a choice like christy doesn't make a choice when she does that rubik's cube it's like trapped you tricked you it's like oh okay so now i'm paying the ultimate price for something i didn't even want like like frank is paying the ultimate price because he thought he was gonna get laid but he's like oh, now I'm in this other thing and I want to escape it, but yet it's the most pleasurable thing. I don't know what but I'm watching. But isn't there
1: something about that? Like the mystery of that? Like the craving for something? Especially with Frank. You know, because yeah, you're right. Poor Christy kind of gets... The, I, I'm going to say Christy because I find Kirsty such a complicated oh, name. Oh, sorry. It's hard I, to me. sorry yeah, oh, no, I was Christ. saying that for me. I said Christy. Okay. Like, I, I always get... Kirsty. I respect that name. There's a lot of good Kirstys. It always takes me a second. So I apologize on behalf of this podcast and to anybody named Kirsty. if I keep saying Christy. I'll do my best. Um, but... That idea of questing for something and you don't know what it is and you don't know what you'll get. I think that's fascinating. Like, because if but, you knew exactly what's gonna happen, what was going to happen, what's the
2: drama? What's the drama like? Well, I don't even hungry. know that Frank wants that. I don't even know what Frank wants. Like I don't mm-hmm. like what you're describing to, about me, about Frank to me is like, I don't even I'm not even with that character long enough to even understand that he's been searching for that. Like, all of a sudden, he's in an Indiana Jones bar from Raiders that they ripped It didn't is rip an Indiana down.
1: Jones bar from Raiders, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and it's like, and I'm like, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know if he is an adventurer. I don't know if, he, like, like it doesn't, like, it like even if you set him up in a different way, like he's coming out of a, you know, a house of ill repute, and it's like, that ah, it didn't do it for me, or I've like, I've done this. Like, I just don't feel like I'm on this journey with any of these characters to be invested in what what you're saying is very interesting. But then I still don't understand why he wanted to leave?
1: Because it's not what he wanted. Like he thought he was getting something else. He was But running. he did he say wrong. it was
2: my best experience of my life. Okay, because like to go back to like
1: this kind of scene of like him getting the box, don't you feel this sense of wrongness in these scenes that puts you like at at at, at a real discomfort level? Like, okay. We have two scenes, right, of this, like, box on the table. Like, the mm-hmm. second time that you see the box on the table, like, at the very end when it's, like, being passed on to the next person, there's, like, dead roaches on the table for no reason. And it is so horrific that it just – this movie makes me just incredibly uncomfortable.
2: You, you don't feel
1: uncomfortable. You're just like, oh, look at those d- dead roaches. That's stupid.
2: Um, yes. But here's what I'll say. I I do appreciate – the practical effects. I do appreciate the fun that they have with the gore and the gr- and the way that they're doing gross up because I much prefer a movie like this than a movie where I'm watching like torture porn or anything like that. There's something fun about this movie. There's something like there's something very um, creative and writerly about, like, having that face on the floor and pushing it together <laughs> to, like, oh, make yeah. the, you know, once the it music, was ripped
1: off. Uh, the music and the sound effects of, like, he, seeing this ooze come out of the floor that will turn out to be Frank, but you don't know what it is. And it's clear. And then it starts to be a spine. And then that thing slowly realize realizes it's a brain. In the moment in the soundtrack, I want to play it here. you hear the brain fuse with the spine and kind of Frank start to really come together. Yeah. That imagery feels like it comes from a brain that is unhealthy.
2: All right. Here's my thought. Okay. I, I think that Stephen King is a, a truly innovative mind, right? And I don't mean I don't mean to compare Clive Barker and Stephen King, but in you know, in many ways, it like when I was growing up, there was it was like Clive Barker, uh, Stephen King, and Dean Kuntz. Like those are the the masters of of horror, right? And and I think that, you know, Stephen King is best as a writer of his. Of his stuff, You know, when he writes his novels, his novellas, whatever he wants to do. I think where he's his worst is when he is directing and writing his own stuff because it's very different skill sets. And what you're describing to me is an appreciation for the writing and visuals and ideas, which I think are very badly done here by the directing and the screenplay. Like, I feel like this idea is better with somebody else taking it over. And that may be why I know you haven't seen it yet, but people really are loving this new Hellraiser because it is an interesting world, but it's like a lot is left on the table. as Well, well.
1: okay. I mean, I think you're actually making like a, a comparison that's really interesting to talk about because like Clive Barker makes this movie and directs his own story you know, thinking—like, he's had a couple of movies of his of his books made before, and he was dissatisfied with them. He didn't mm-hmm. think they had the imagery right. He thought they made things too goofy. He didn't think they went far enough into his brain. And at the same time, you know, one year before this movie comes out is when Stephen King— you know, Who has historically felt the same way, hated The Shining, like did the same thing. He tried to direct his own movie, Maximum Overdrive. So it's sort of like this period, 86, 87, are where these two guys are like, well, can we do this ourselves? Can we take our stories and put them in our own control? And Maximum Overdrive is definitely not reviewed well. People did not like that film.
2: Yeah, of and, course.
1: And I, and I respect in a way that Clive Barker is so open about how little he knows about directing at this period. Like he. He says before he decided to direct Hellraiser, he uh, went to the library to check out a book on how to direct a movie, but the library was all checked out of it. So he was like, oh, well, I mean, he, he had experience as a director of stage productions, like he'd always mm-hmm. directed a lot of theater. He was a weird kid, like uh, side note on what a weird kid Clive Barker is. Clive Barker is a guy who claims that he remembers how he was born. He remembers being born in a cesarean birth. He says his first memories of being alive are bloody panicked traumatizing hearing people yell and scream and he's like totally remember that totally remember being born which is wild Uh, as he grew up like he had this grandpa who worked on ships and would like sail all over the world and he would bring him back stuff and one of the things he actually brought back was a puzzle box a lot like this one so he was a kid crazy weird memories that maybe uh, that's, that's playing with these puzzle boxes. He said he loved books on anatomy when he was little, that what it, he really admired about his favorite book of anatomy was that the poses were like all really beautifully done. So it was like a, a handsome man in front of a Greek column with absolutely no skin on his body. And that it made such an impact on him, which actually makes me think of the body world's exhibit, which I, I've oh, never yes, been. Have you been, yeah, I've never I been have. to one of those. They seem really, is it, uh, I mean, I hear that they're all like murdered people prisoners yeah i, I saw it out. before
2: it was like when i saw bill cosby before uh the full story came out i it was like i was able to enjoy it and not have any not guilt but like i could never see bill cosby now that's how i saw bodies i didn't know any of that story and then i left and i was like people like you know that that's this I was like oh and I, like it was already tough to look at in a way it was yeah yeah but it was but it was interesting
1: it seems yeah uh, but but Clyde Barker was the kind of kid, he'd like go to school with like a faked severed head and he'd like walk around school with oh, a wow. fake severed head. And Doug Bradley, who plays, you know, the character known as Pinhead, uh, was one of his friends when he was young. And he would like be in his plays, like he would play like the devil in his plays. And so, yeah, he directed a lot of stuff. He wrote a lot of stuff as like a theater kid when he was little. And so- He felt like he could do this movie, even though he said, and my favorite quote about like his learning curve on this was he says, quote, if you had shown me a plate of spaghetti and said that it was a lens, I might have believed you. Uh. (laughs) That said, I think the movie looks really great and creepy. I love all the lights coming from behind the slats. I think think for a first film,
2: I think he did a pretty good job. But- There are things here that, like, and I think that the reason why there is this mix, and I agree, maximum overdrive is also an interesting idea, you know, and there are things about it that are interesting, things that are over the top. I think he visually knew what he wanted to convey, and I think that, that, uh, that he got a lot of that stuff, but it feels like it's also halfway there you've read the story and that's really interesting i would like to read the story i think that what we're describing is you know a world in which the victims call the evil to themselves uh which look i just watched wish upon for how did this get made the same idea ryan philippi gives uh, a box to his daughter He's like hey you like uh chinese stuff it's like a chinese box and she oh, like oh
1: god i saw that
2: You know, and then she's like, uh, and she looks at it and she's like, I'll make a wish. And then all of a sudden, crazy shit happens. Like, no one's telling her. Like, now, I'm not saying this is a good movie, but remember that movie with um, Cameron Diaz? I think it's called The Box, where they're like, if you want to press the button, you'll press it, but something will happen. You know, one person will die. Now, that was really interesting. Like, I like a movie like that where it's like, now you're watching people wrestle with the consequences. All right, I make a wish on this box. I hit the button, and someone will die around the world. I don't know who that. I won't even know, but I will have the responsibility of that. I killed somebody for my own purpose. I love that like premise as a um, thing. And I, and I. But when you were saying like an original idea of like, oh, are people calling in Freddy Krueger? They're not. Freddy Krueger's popping into, like, it's not like this random idea, like, oh my gosh, it's the first movie where the person, you know, uh, well, I guess like, well, maybe Freddy Krueger, well, I guess he's infecting their dreams. I don't know. I, I, I just feel like it's exact, is that the most novel idea that this movie has is like that somebody is like part of their demise. I mean, part of all these horror movies are like, I'm a part of my demise. I don't get out of the Amityville Horror House when they say, get the fuck out, get out. Or I should, I will leave by stay.
1: Well, yeah, but, but but there's the desire, I think, is what makes this film feel like unique to me, like seeing just like this, like representation on screen. Of sure. Desire. But, of, like, that's not kind what, of, but that's not what Christy wants. Well, no, but Julia to me is like the main thrust of this movie. I mean, honestly, like when they were going Julia to be sequels, doesn't touch the
2: fucking box. Yeah, but Julia she doesn't touch to- the box. And she doesn't even want to go to that world. She just wants to fuck ghost dick. Yeah, which like is, that's fucked up in itself, man.
1: And he's not a ghost. He's a, he's a, he's, he's, he's the most fleshy, grossy thing on the planet. You get to see his cheekbones emerge. But that's you get like to see them like, oh, when he's like trying to pinhead. get her to like touch him. And he's like, come here and make me whole again. See, it's making me whole again. Every drop of blood you spill puts more flesh on my bones.
2: And we both want that, don't we? Good. Come here. Come here, damn you. I want to touch you. I guess one of my question is like, she's not experiencing pain. She's just experiencing pleasure. Right? I guess she's grossed out, but like it doesn't seem like part of their relationship is based on that, it doesn't seem like she's like in this world. Like what you're describing is she's like outside of the plot. No like but she's not
1: she's inside of the mood because like he is horrific. She doesn't totally want to touch him yet, but she's like drawn to something that's that's revolting to her at the same time. That it, there's that conflict in her. I mean, like
2: mm-hmm. okay, think, all right, like, I see that. I, I that see conflict, that.
1: Okay. I find the conflict really fascinating. Or it makes me think of like cuz she doesn't hate her husband necessarily, but there's that scene where she's like having sex with her husband. She loves him. She's trying to kind of protect him from going upstairs. Like as much as she wants to resurrect Frank, she doesn't want to kill her own husband. She's not so clear about her motivation. She's like, oh, I do like this guy. I don't hate him at least. And like, I don't want him to die. And they're they're having sex. She's having sex with her husband and she loves her husband. And she realizes that she thinks Frank might might want to kill his own brother. And so she's like having sex with her husband and saying no, 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 talking to Frank. And Frank is slicing a rat open like over their bed. And that just Absolute mix of like upending dread. I mean, listen to this.
2: Please. Please.
1: That mood, yes, no, hate, love, pleasure, pain, sexy, gross—like that combination—I find so singular in this film.
2: I <laughs> don't. I don't. I, no, I'm, I'm being very serious. Yeah. I don't disagree. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I don't okay. disagree that there are these ideas that are at play. And I and I, and and I think what you're saying is like. I do agree that these are interesting ideas and they're elevated ideas. I don't think that they are fully realized. I think that they are often on the side of the gross. I I think that like, I don't understand her relationship with her husband. I, I, I feel like I'm watching a jealous man watch his brother fuck his love. And that's when he's trying to fuck with her head by showing her that, like cutting off that rat or cutting that rat in half. Uh, I I mean, I I, I mean, I don't think
1: Frank loves her. Like Frank totally just lets her get stabbed and doesn't care. Frank totally stabs her
2: and doesn't care.
1: Frank is a user. Frank is like so dangerous.
2: I guess. I mean, I guess, I mean, it's like, it's like, then why not kill the husband right away? Like why not take his flesh right away? Like no one asked, no one asked the questions of this movie, but I think it's cool enough that I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I'm like, I'm kind of, I'm with you and I'm against you. Like, I'm really, like, in, in a way that oh, I'm you're like... you're conflicted? Is it pleasure and pain yeah. talking to me right now? I think that's what I'm wrestling. I like this idea. I like this world. And I'm not saying I need, like, a villain or a bad guy. I just felt like it was so touched upon like the script is moving so quickly and it's like well we're existing in this world of pleasure and pain and people trying to find the ultimate pleasure but understand that that's mixed with pain so we have frank he's trying to find pleasure we assume right and he finds pleasure and pain so much so that he feels trapped there so he wants to escape we don't really get into that. We don't understand what that is. Okay, fine. Then he has this relationship with this woman that he had before. She finds pleasure from him, but she's also grossed out. I wouldn't say pain is a part of it, but maybe the pain of the gross being grossed out by it, sure. Then she has a relationship with her husband that is neither seemingly neither pleasurable nor painful. It seems like they're un- unloving with each other. And then she is committing these horrible acts but doesn't really seem to have any joy in even killing these men I mean I guess like I would be even curious there like she seduces these men to get them back to the house but she doesn't even seem to like to revel in that like I would like no she does not like killing them at all like I feel like she does
1: she doesn't her reluctance I think is part of the draw to me like she doesn't want to be doing this but you can like hear and say like This conversation with the first victim, like, when she kind of changes her mind and resolves, but she doesn't, she's doing things she doesn't want to do, and that conflict in her, I love. What's the matter? What? That's what you brought me here for, isn't it? What, isn't
0: isn't it? I suppose so, yes. So what's your problem? Let's get on with it.
2: You're not going to change your fucking
0: mind, are you?
1: And then, yeah, he's sort of a dick, so she's like, "Fine, I'll go through this." But even in the moment, she's like, "Ah!" And, but wouldn't and, like, that be to interesting see... to like
2: to have her enjoy that moment? Like again, like this mix of pleasure, pain, uh violence, uh, sexual. Because it's like b- by killing him, she gets to get closer to fucking the guy that she wants to have sex with. It's like.
1: But I, I like don't her. Know. I like her not enjoying it. Like, oh, okay. Oh, this is a really weird example. Like, okay. maybe I should just explain some of my mentality that I was articulating weirdly this week. I find awful things oddly romantic. Okay. Like when you do something you don't want to do, but you do it to you know make another person happy. There's mm-hmm. something kind of romantic in that. Like, and when I say don't do something you don't want to do, I'm talking like no. But I understand like, that. But, that but but like, yes. Like yeah. Like my. Uh, Like my boyfriend and I have to go to a wedding Mm -hmm.
0: um,
1: and the only flight, and I hate saying this, the only flight that made any sense was a Spirit Airlines flight and it's terrible. And the idea that like we're going to this wedding on a Spirit Airlines flight, I find sort of an endearing tribute to how much I love this couple. The idea that my boyfriend, who's not even like related, this is my cousin, he has to go on a Spirit Airlines flight for this because he wants to be my date at this wedding. I find that romantic. And I, I guess it's strange to be comparing flying on Spirit Airlines to like being torn apart by a thousand you know, claws. But it is kind of the modern era equivalent, I would say, because they don't even give you water. And that's just uh,
2: wrong. That's well, you're just, in wow. an, you're, but you're in yeah. a full airport. You can get whatever you need.
1: Yeah, that's true. But like, so in that... Idea: the idea of Julia killing people she doesn't want to kill because of a passion. I actually really connect to that on such a deep level. Like okay. her her reluctance, I find that endearing.
2: Uh, you know, I'm 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 here. I'm here for you. I'm like I want <laughs> like, like 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 I think it's like look. All relationships require compromise, right? And and it requires allowing yourself to be viewed as a team. And there are some things that you uh, lead with and there are some things that you follow behind. But like it's for the, you are, you know, you should be your own person, but you're kind of together, you are creating this life, right? So there's always like a little bit of compromise, pain, Spirit Airlines, Sure, uh, I, I, um, <laughs> but I think like, I, but maybe it's my lack of understanding of S and M. But if I have a lack of understanding of S and M in this way, then this movie needs to do a better job of like showing me exactly what that is because I don't really get it. Like I'm getting the hooks in the skin, which is kind of reminding me of that Jennifer Lopez movie directed by Tarsum, right? Like I'm getting like that kind oh, of. Oh yeah, it the cell. Yeah, like I'm getting that kind of an image here, um, but I'm not like really. Like, that seems violent to me. That doesn't seem... Like, I'm not seeing the pleasurable aspects of this. I'm not seeing... Everything you're talking about, I'm not seeing. Uh,
1: well, here, well, then let's listen to Clive Barker talk about what he sees in this. Because one of the things he sees really strongly is beauty. He mm-hmm. sees beauty in this movie.
0: We've gone out of our way, Bob Keane's team and, and myself, have gone out of the way to design monsters which are not going to really resemble anything that would have been seen before. That's my hope anyway. There are going to be moments when the audience is going to be uh, stunned by the elegance and the beauty of the image at the same time as being appalled by the subject matter. And that's a very interesting tension and paradox.
1: I mean, do you see beauty in this? I mean, as as, as one kind of interesting side note, in the book, The Hellbound Heart, he specifically describes that the Cenobites smelled like vanilla.
2: Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting, but they don't look like that. They look like they've come straight from hell. <laughs> like I, again, like they look like they've come, like you know, they're fucking hell monsters. You know, it's like, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, that is, I guess, Pinhead's actual name is Hell Priest. He like Pinhead was a name that the special effects guy gave him, and then like I think they were all very un- annoyed that Hell Priest was his name. Like in later books that Clyde Barker has written about the character, it becomes a runner that every time somebody calls him Pinhead, he gets mad, and like it, you don't you don't want him to get mad.
2: Yeah, um, you know, like he also said by the way in the book that uh, that that the uh, Hell
1: Priest. I'll say this so I don't get damnationed. Uh, has the voice of quote an excited girl, which they did change. Um, I mean, I, I I just want to hear one of my favorite lines that Doug Bradley says as Hell Priest. You
0: must come with us, taste our pleasures. Oh, please, go, go and leave me alone. Oh, no tears, please. Oh, no tears, please.
1: I mean, come on, no tears, waste of tears. Oh, that d- does this movie seem funny to you at all? I think this movie is kind of quietly
2: low key, very funny. Um, well, yes and no, but I'm finding it funny for other reasons. Like okay. I'm like, you know, because I'm like, it's so silly, it's so stupid. It's like, you know, like this idea, like even when the husband cuts his hands, like, oh, I hate blood, I hate blood, I'm gonna go to the hospital because I hate blood, you know, and. um, I just, I think I don't care. I don't, but I don't actually find the Cenobites funny. I'm not like, oh my gosh, these these guys are crazy. I just kind of find it all to be, um, like walking through a Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights maze. I'm not sponsored by Halloween Horror Nights. I'm not supposed to drop it into casual conversation like that as a secret (laughs) ad. But uh, that's what I kind of feel like. I'm like, I'm looking at things that are visually gross or they're like, ooh, spooky. It just, that's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like it's engaging my brain in the way that you are saying it is, which I believe is underneath all of it. And I think it's failed in what it's doing. And when I look at like what people are Thematically I get it. Like that's what people are reaching for. Me. Like no, you don't get it. It's Clive Barker is doing this and that and this. Um I, as a viewer now in 2022 I have no affinity to this movie. I have no affinity to this character. I'm just like, "Yeah." Now, meanwhile, I watched Freddy Krueger Nightmare Before, El- you know, Nightmare Before Elm Street. Uh I watched Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> and I felt an incredible connection to it. So it's not like, oh, I'm just having, looking at my old eyes or my new eyes or looking at old shit and not appreciating it. I appreciate The Exorcist. I appreciate Texas Dangerous Massacre. I appreciate these deeper themed things that were made in the 70s and 80s. I'm not, I'm not a snob. I'm not, it just doesn't feel like it's fully realized. It's half-baked. And I think the visuals are so good that you don't realize how half-baked it is.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. I'm wondering if part of this, I'm going to throw out a, fear, a theory. Part of... The mystique that that like you that doesn't really work on this film for you is just because Pinhead himself has become such sort of an icon in a way that almost made him a joke, mm-hmm. you know. Like like five years after this movie comes out, like the MTV Movie Awards did a skit where like Pinhead is trying to get past a bouncer played by David Spade. Hi,
2: and you are those who know me call me Pinhead. Okay, let me take a look. See at the list. Hmm. No
1: Pinhead. Could it be under Nailhead?
2: Just let me in, or I'll tear your soul apart. Okay, that attitude will not get you in any faster. If
1: I were you, I'd just sit and be patient. If someone calls with your name, I'll let you right in.
2: Look, I came all the way from hell to be here tonight. I just need to get in there and steal a few more souls. From what I hear, these rockers are halfway there anyway.
1: I mean, so, like, the, the, the majesty of Pinhead, I think, has been sold out pretty easily. I mean, even, like, the, the, the first VHS release of this literally ended with, like, a home shopping network thing for you being able to buy, like, Pinhead merch.
2: Oh, my gosh. Keep things warm or cold in the Hellraiser thermos. The Hellraiser coffee mug will help you rise and shine. Hellraiser baseball caps... One size fits all, even pinheads. Let everyone know who they're playing with. Get a hellraiser sports bag.
1: and I will say, like I think some of the pinhead fan art goofiness is kind of great. like that um, I was looking around and I found like a song uh, on YouTube by a person who's like at King Henry the Etch who did like a hellraiser jam where it's like pinhead singing about pleasure and pain and i was like this is actually pretty cleverly written good job the full song is
2: like actually it, it, it it's good it's solid
0: the
1: so I am wondering if maybe Pinhead
2: has been watered down for you. It could be, yes. And maybe like in the time, I mean, but look, look even what we're looking at, like Freddy Krueger, when you look at him, is this person who's like his skin is melted across his face, right? It, it is, he's got this knives for hands, like, I don't see that much of a difference. Like you're telling me, oh, the backstory is very different though. Uh, but it's like visually, it's not even that wildly different. Like I don't, I don't like, I, yes, he's got pins in his head, but I'm like, I don't feel like he's like, oh, this is great. But also like, I don't get the s and Yes, I guess it is S&M, but it's like, it's so weird to take it out of context. Like, I mean, he's got I, his
1: nipples out everywhere.
2: Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. Was
1: he the scariest Cenobite for you or which Cenobite were you like, whoa?
2: Oh, I mean, of course, of course, Butterball.
1: Yeah, Butterball's terrifying. Butterball, um, I get really, like, the female Cenobite, the one who's got, like, the tracheotomy and the yeah. half-moon through her face,
2: oof, that one's pretty creepy to me. I mean, th- there are some really good, li- I mean, th- again, visually this movie works. Like, visually this movie works. And then I think, here's how this movie works better for me, besides everything that I've already said. Uh, better acting, uh, and and uh, like, and I think a little bit more of a of a stable I think it's just you can get away with a story like this in writing because you can live in characters brains you can understand smells you can see all the things and it feels to me like one of those versions of a of a movie that was like just a adaptation of a book but it like they took all the dialogue but they didn't take any the action but they didn't take any of the internal factors of it and that's, why I think, that this movie runs uh, runs in this weird gutter. Now, I understand there's, like, 15 of these movies. I, I think that the reason why there are so many is because of fucking Pinhead. People just think that that's cool. Like, I'm like, I've seen Pinhead. I'm like, that's a cool fucking looking guy. Like And it's like, sometimes that's all you need, I think, for these horror movies. Like, no one cares. Like, oh, Ring. It's a girl with hair in front of her face. Like, I think there's, like, it's iconically, it's an iconic looking villain, and I think that like the money machine of these places and the the fact that this character's barely in this thing, they're going, give us more. And I think the second movie goes all into the Cenobites, right? It's like a Cenobite movie. And now then it goes all over the place. Yeah, and and then it's
1: like like all pinhead. You see how he gets created in later ones, and he becomes like bigger and bigger, which I find... I I mean, my heart breaks a little bit for Clyde Barker because he really saw, like, Julia as the heart of this movie, but, like, the actress didn't want to come back. And, like, he thought Julia would be the main figure. I like that. And she gets overshadowed by, like, by the pinheadness of it all. Okay, I want to test some things on you. What 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 if we frame this movie not as a horror film, but as a noir? I think there's an argument to look at it as just, like, the most fucked up film noir. Like, Julia is a film noir kind of villain. She's... I love like early on we just sort of see all those shots that I always think of as the Barbara Stanwyck shot where it's like a woman on top of a of a flight of stairs and she's staring down at you. Yeah, you know, she is a, a I would say like a femme fatale noir character. She's got her secrets that she's hiding from people. She's got her plans. She's got motivations you don't understand. What if this was just the most fucked up noir? Does that help? It doesn't. It does help? <laughs> uh, yeah, like yes, in more capable hands. Okay. What if it's the most fucked up fairy tale? Like, because I think, I, there's a again, way of I like this, all. Of, yeah. Yes,
2: I think I'm not like this is a bad idea. This is a bad thing. What you've described to me is way more interesting than anything that I saw in that movie. I don't think that that, and then when people go like, oh, this new Hellraiser is as good as the first one. And I'm like, is the first one good? Or is it all because of the people who are horror nerds that saw it in the 80s? They're like, this is my favorite, it's so fucked up. Because it did feel different at the time. But now this movie feels very much. Uh, of the now, right? I mean, there. I mean, look.
1: I. I mean, like, it made it made me feel dirty when I watched it last year. Really? It made me feel dark. It made me feel like I'd been to a weird, a weird room, and I had emerged, and there was still something on my skin. That's how I felt when I watched this movie. I got kind of caught up thinking about like the idea of thinking about like as like a screwed up fairy tale because I think there is something in that like you want this thing, don't have it. That's like a basic fairy tale tenant. And then there's a scene at the end where like Frank is wearing Larry's skin, like he's killed Larry. You don't quite know that that's happened yet. His daughter shows up. She's actually not his daughter in the book. She's like his female friend. Um, But Kirstie shows up and like she's talking to who she thinks is her friend. And it's really like Red Riding Hood. Like you think this is your grandmother. You think this is your dad. It's like this most fucked up kind of primal version of a fairy tale. But it's actually Frank. And he's like in the skin and he's being really, really creepy. Your brother Frank is upstairs.
0: He's he's upstairs and he's trying to kill you. He's gonna
1: kill you. No, wait, no, wait, wait, wait! Whatever Frank did was unspeakable.
0: It's unspeakable. But believe me, it's finished with now. Why is it finished? He's gone. What does gone mean? He's
2: dead, Kirsty. Well, I guess, I mean, isn't every horror movie like a fairy tale, a fucked up fairy tale? Like this idea, like it's, it's the, you know, we're used to hearing these stories of Hansel and Gretel going to the forest and they meet yeah. this witch and the witch is trying to kill him, but then they escape. Horror movies often are just heightened versions of just that, right? Like, that is and true. then they escape, you know, it's like, it is these, uh, these ideas and we're witches and trolls and all this sort of stuff. And now we've betrayed them with the, you know, Cenobites. It's like, you've come into this world, you, you know, your parents said, keep, you know, on the trail, but you get lost. You, you know, don't talk to strangers, but you talk to the wolf. Don't go looking for pleasure too much because you'll find it. It's almost like it's, it's punitive. That, yes, these characters call these creatures to them, but it's punitive. It's, it's not like a, um, you could say like, oh, this is a movie about like, don't have too much sex because sex will actually hurt you. Well, well, we, you're,
1: yes, but no. Yes, okay. but no. I would say it's like, hearing you articulate it is helping me try to articulate so i'm glad we're having yeah. this conversation cuz i think it's less this movie saying don't have sex this will happen which is i think a lot of horror films i think it's this movie is saying i get that you want to i get that you want to and there's something transgressive about that you know like i understand that you want to have sex and maybe you should this might happen but maybe you still should like it's 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 screwed up i think in that way I mean, even just in the imagery, like Julia doesn't just have sex with Frank. She has sex with Frank on her wedding dress, on her actual wedding dress, you know, like every little bit of it that makes it more clear that we're watching people breaking these rules, but loving the act of breaking the rule. Like it, 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 inv- it invites in the worst, your the, the part of yourself that makes you scared. You know, like mm. the part of your personality that you're like, oh yeah, I, yeah, my I, daddy I, told me that's... not to go into the woods, but I'm gonna go. Like it's really about the why you would go to the woods and not like the don't go. It's the well, why then, you want to.
2: But I guess in what I what I'm not getting translated then for me is that pleasure. I'm like, I don't feel like I feel like it's all Frank. I don't feel like it's her. Like Frank is saying, like, like like there's something about like what you were saying, like, oh, on the wedding dress. Like I feel like Frank, like like, I, like, I, I feel like she's so passive. Like when I was saying before, like I wanted to see her get pleasure from killing these people, like let her get that, get with that idea. Like, cause she wants more, she wants more body to fuck. So she's killing these men. Like she's so passively, like, I don't feel like her getting caught up in like caught up in the toxicity of the relationship or getting caught up in this world. I think it's, that's a lot of the times with these drug movies and stuff like that, or or you know, going somewhere and and then at a certain point, once you go in, you may go through the door mistakenly, but then then you may start to like who you become in that world. And I don't ever feel like she likes who she's becoming. I feel like she's just uh, like a slave to Frank in a way. Like I, like uh, like I wanted her to kind of want to open the box. Like I want to get in this now. I I you've brought me so much over. I will give you over. So I get in the, but you know what I'm saying? Like I wanted her oh, to, that's an
1: interesting idea. Like if she you know. had had, cause you're right. She never does know. And she has, doesn't really know any of this backstory. He doesn't even yeah. show her the box.
2: She's just in love.
1: And that's kind of sad and sweet. I mean, it is, but it's not what we're talking about. You know what I think is, I'm really glad you actually brought something up at the beginning of this podcast that I'm thinking about now, like that this movie comes out the same year as fatal attraction. And you were talking mm-hmm. about the similarities. And now I'm really kind of thinking about that a lot. That if I saw these two movies in the same year.
2: we basically see them in the same month.
1: Yeah, that I'd be like, okay, I get it. Like, I actually feel like they're talking about similar things. You know, like kind right. of questioning domesticity, questioning happiness. Like,
2: It's a movie where we're like, where yuppies are moving out to the country. Oh, the city. It's like, it's that kind of. I've seen it happen now as I've gotten older with so many friends. Like, oh, we're moving upstate now. We're going over here. We're, you know, we're getting out of the, you know, it's like, it's this thing to adulthood. But then there's this like element of, but I still want to stay young and youthful and I want to fuck around. You know, and I think sex is a very easy way to show that, you know, it's a sexier. I mean, it is sexier way to show instead of like getting like liquored up or, you know, fucked up.
1: No, it's true. And I think that makes me really think about the character of Larry who I I really like. I mean, the actor like Andrew Robinson who plays him has just this kind of goofy, big cheekboned charm. Like one of the note runners that I noticed the second time that I watched it is like Larry questioning gender roles within his own movie. Hmm. Like that Larry, there's that scene really early on, right? Where like Larry is helping the movers carry the mattress up and they're like, could we have a beer? And Julia very pointedly, As, like, maybe how the movie would code, like, women of the 80s not knowing their place is, like, I am not getting you a beer. It, like, makes him get it. house things in there?
0: Looks like a bomb dropped. You got any beer? There's some in the fridge. Oh, well. Why
2: don't I get it?
1: I mean, that scene is, like, I think kind of obviously sort of goofily funny. Like, the scene of him, like, whistling while Julia is carrying corpses around upstairs, also kind of funny, like the clueless husband. But one scene that I thought was really fun this time that, uh, is, like, there's a move, there's a scene where, like, he and Julia are sitting watching TV, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's sort of checked out of watching TV. And so, like, on one level, the scene is about just, like, they're coexisting, but she's not really present in the moment. But what he's watching on TV is boxing. Yes. If you see in his face, he's like self-conscious that maybe she thinks boxing is too violent and that maybe he shouldn't be watching boxing, that his poor wife might think boxing is too violent. His wife, who's been like murdering men upstairs and making out with a bloody corpse, is too violent. And his self-consciousness... About trying to be a better man for her, like trying to give her the man that she wants, which he thinks maybe she doesn't want a boxing. And we know like, oh, no, she wants even more than boxing. She wants boxing double plus skinless makeouts. But like that just that little element of like what men want versus women want in his imagination. And it's done almost silently. It's kind of mostly on his face. Yeah, I
2: like that scene. Yeah. Again, like. We, But again, I don't feel like we understand this relationship. Like, that's about, I would say that's the most descriptive scene of their relationship in the entire film. I think that Frank watching his brother and his love have sex fucks up the story of their relationship because, like, she's coming on to him to make him not go in the attic, right? Like, so she, like, offers herself up for sex there. We never see them have sex without a reason, like we don't see like oh what was their sex boring was it bland you know the minute they go to the house she goes to the attic she's like oh I'm fucking this guy and i think that like that does a disservice to the characters cuz it's like what is she getting from this other thing she already feels out of love with him but i don't even yeah. understand why she, i mean there's so much that i'm like but 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 and i and i think i'm hoping that now you know, we can kind of tell that story in a more interesting way. It feels like the reaction to this new Hellraiser is that. I mean, I'm guessing about what people are thinking about this thing. But it's also coming off the thing that people are like, it's the best since the original, which is everyone was saying about Predator, too. Um, I think that, you know, what Predator did was, like, it it deconstructed the idea... Like, Predator just was the idea of a uh, big, scary thing, you know, insurmountable. It's, it's, it's you know, it's a... um David and Goliath kind of tale, right? And I think what Prey effectively did was just pull it back to its literal core. Like it, it, you couldn't make it more Davy and Goliath the way that they kind of uh, put it. And I think that a reboot of Hellraiser in this time is way like can we get it back to that can we bring up these ideas can we go to those places that maybe we couldn't have gone in a, in a mass marketed movie in 1986 maybe that will be what we get to see i'm i'll i will watch that new movie i want to watch that new movie because i think if everything you're saying makes me excited about that
1: maybe i feel like i'm finally okay saying this in that you know, like we are both children who grew up in an era of sequels yes where it's like i grew up where they're like commercials for like all the Hellraiser sequels on, you know, like commercials right. for all of these sequels. And the idea of like sequels was such a bad word, such a bad kind of name. Like you knew that a sequel, I get what I'm trying to say, I guess is like my first exposure to all of the major horror franchises were through the byproducts that were already considered to be mostly bad. Mm-hmm. Right. I, me- I met Pinhead as a bad thing, as a dumb right. thing. And I met Freddy as a dumb thing and Jason. And then, I, and then I, it's been nice being older and going back and actually realizing why these things had power in the first place. And so because of that, it's, I've always, you know, grown up kind of like, oh, you dismiss, you dismiss like anything that's redoing the original. But I do feel like this wave of reboots we've had in the last four years has actually been people who understand why the horror film worked in the first place. The first- Halloween, the first Halloween reboot, I thought was good. I didn't like the sequel and I hope the third one pulls it out. I don't know. Um, but the first one I thought really got to something that was essential about Halloween. And I feel like, yeah, Prey got to something essential that was about Predator, I assume, still having not seen Predator. And I hope that Hellraiser does this. I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm unpacking for me that making a reboot or a sequel is necessarily a bad thing, even though most of my life it has been.
2: I honestly think it comes down to one thing do you have something new to say? Or are you remaking something in the hopes of recreating that magic? And I think that that's the real distinction here. It's like, what am I bringing to this that needs it to come back? Like, And I think there are a lot of horror movies that, uh, especially horror movies, that may have had a great idea that was unfulfilled and you can go back and kind of make it better. But I also think that horror films are reflective of the time. I, I don't know if... Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is as interesting now or would be as cool. It's a way that, like, I feel like the internet was the theme of so many movies in the 90s because it was new and it was different. Like, I don't know if you want to, you know, remake these movies where people are like, what is a computer? Like, that's the whole premise, like Firewall and, you know, things like that. So I I think it's, you have to look at things in a different way where I really liked, you know, pulling it back to its basics, getting into something because sequels can sort of balloon out and, and destroy an original idea. And I think it's like, you have to look at it as making the first, not a remake or a redo. And I think a lot of people are looking at it as going like, no, my reimagining is this. I think, no, no, no. It's like, you have to confidently be like, I'm making a movie and this is the premise and no one's made this before and I'm doing this. Because I think once you start going like, well, they did this, so I'm going to do this. And they're, like you're starting to compromise all over the place. It's like having, it. there's too many barriers there. And I think when you have a, a, a thing that no one cares about, it's even better. To make a remake, because it's sort of like, oh, we we've already given up on this. And I think Halloween was at least in whatever you want to say about it. That's David Gordon Green and McBride's version of it. Uh, I think it was a point where no one gave a shit about it anymore.
1: Well, then, if anything, maybe the sequels are doing a service, which is they've driven a, a story into the point where nobody cares about it anymore. And then you can have the reboot. It's like they're hurting them in a direction in order to reboot.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, the way that Peter Weller's body was just discarded and someone's like, hey, I can use that dead body to make a RoboCop. And then that was it.
1: Well, one thing I feel like we're coming across in this conversation is that there is a core of what scares us that feels like it's like very just shared in all of our stories. I like that at least we're talking about this movie and all of these things in terms of like, what is the primal fear? You know? Yeah, And so... That does make horror kind of fascinating as a genre. Is it like gets into a primal fear, but has to do it in a new way. Like it has, it almost has to be like brainstem old and also fresh. Yeah. Right? I just feel like this movie, the fir- this first Hellraiser feels singular to me because it creates a mood that I have not felt in another horror film of like dread, of feeling uncomfortable, of feeling not sure what's happening and feeling like... Feeling like I shouldn't be here. Like, I guess when I watch Hellraiser, I feel like I shouldn't be watching Hellraiser. And there's something powerful in that emotion to me. It makes it feel... It it feels dangerous. It feels like a movie you should not be watching. Even with all of its, like, missteps. Like, I will agree on. I think Frank's tattoo, that, like, dumb bird he's got on his shoulder... So dorky, so stupid. I can't I can't stick up with some of like the tattoo choices. Like the tattoo's supposed to make him look like a dangerous man of the world. And I'm like, no, that is the lamest tattoo. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. Um, I kind of like Kirsty. I like I like Ashley Lawrence. I think Ashley Lawrence has this thing that's sort of like Winona Ryder meets Melanie Linsky. You know, those like big, big brown eyes. Like, and I I like that this character at every turn when you think she's going to be. You know the, the the weak teenager actually has like some fair backbone. She's not she's not like to me either cheap spunky or too weak. Like when she first sees the the box, you know, when she first has her like first encounter with like Frank, who's like you know being so creepy.
0: No. Kirsty, it's Frank. It's Uncle Frank. No. You remember? No.
2: Come to Daddy.
1: When you come out of that scene, she is, like, traumatized in a way that I don't feel like I've seen in a lot of horror films. She's, like, numb. She's disheveled. She's covered in blood. She's sort of, like, beyond realizing even where she is and where she's walking after, like, one interaction with Pinhead. She's fucked up, like, by this one time of meeting him. And you see how horrific it is on her face. Like, I think that this film represents the horror that she sees, in a clearer way than like, oh, it's Jason. Oh no, I ran away from him, and now I'm sort of giggling, and now I'm sort of back, and here's Jason again. Like, I, th- I think it takes its premise so seriously, and how it happens to the characters, and then like her bit of grit. Uh, yeah. I really, re- I respect
2: her bit of grit. I like her grit. There's a lot here that now you you just talked to me about her grit, and I'm thinking about. It, I'm like, oh yeah, what about her journey? And then I'm like, oh, when she goes to the Cenobite world. What the fuck is she experiencing? Like a weird long hallway? Like We're not even, I'm like, now I just like that one part. I'm like, I do like her. I'm like, wait, but what did she even get from that? Nothing. I'm walking down some weird hell hallway. Again, Universal Horror Nights version of this movie. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know what I'm getting. I get what you're saying. In a grand scheme of things, the ending is so anticlimactic. It's like, did they win? Did they lose? Like, I, it just seems like people getting stabbed. The house falls apart. Like, I'm like, okay.
1: All right, fine. Then I guess Andrew sums up your reaction. He expected you'd feel this way.
2: My feeling about this film, okay, my gut feeling, is that there's going to be no middle ground. People are going to loathe and despise this movie, or
1: they are going to go out of their minds about it.
2: And look, I don't want, by the way, I don't loathe it. I just thought it was schlocky. And there's a difference. Like, I can enjoy schlock. I enjoyed this movie. I think it's schlocky. Uh, And that's okay, right?
1: Well, then maybe this will be the first time I'll read a negative review and you'll actually agree with everything they say. Even though I will say that, God bless his soul, Roger Ebert gets a lot of the plot of
2: Hellraiser wrong as he's making fun. Oh, I read Roger Ebert's review. I 100% agree with that. Like, yeah.
1: (laughs) With even his misunderstanding of the plot? Okay, here we go. First, I will say Roger Ebert gave this movie, out of four stars, he gave it half a star. And he opens with a quote, I have seen the future of the horror genre, and his name is Clive Barker, Stephen King. And now, Roger says, Now there is a blurb Stephen King should have written under one of his pen names. He may have seen the future of the horror genre, but he has almost certainly not seen Hellraiser, which is as dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long, cold night. This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread, as the fear grows inside of you that it will indeed turn out to be feature-length. Here's where he begins to get the plot wrong. He says... This house is purchased by the Cottons, Larry and Julia, who move in with their daughter, Kirsty. Kirsty never moves into the movie. Uh, this is some house. The kitchen sink is full of maggots devouring rotten flesh. Isn't the real estate agent supposed to tidy up details like that? But the Cottons buy the house anyway, maybe because there is no love in their marriage, and so this cheerless house seems like the ideal venue for decades of silent suffering and wordless blame. Then Larry cuts himself, and the blood soaks into the floorboards, awakening the creature that awaits there. And the creature turns out to be his brother, who once had an affair with Julia. Parenthetical aside here, if Roger is confused that they didn't buy the house, they inherited it, He's like extra confused that just coincidentally the brother happens to be being there. So this is why he says, I have seen the future of implausible plotting, and his name is Clive Barker. Who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised and sometimes even moved. But there are no surprises in Hellraiser, only a dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. What fun is it watching the movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit, style, or reason. And the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize it's bankruptcy of imagination. Maybe Stephen King was thinking of a different Clive Barker.
2: Wow. Well, first of all, that's a dickhead review because I think that Clive Barker's work speaks for itself. Like him as a director, you say, I didn't see the future of horror directing, uh, you know, or movie making as Clive Barker. Like he like Clive Barker, that you can't get rid of Clive Barker's work. I think even what you've described to me in the book is interesting, like the smell of vanilla, all these sort of things. I, I'm sure there were certain things at play with this movie that he had to make concessions of and he could do certain things. And there, that's why I think this movie is really, from a practical gore effect, is really fun and really gross and really uh, innovative. But I'm sure there are other things that they couldn't really push forward as much, right? Um, I think that. Yeah. I you mean, I know, can, say
1: how you can say this movie doesn't have any style.
2: No, I think this movie does have style. I think this. I think that's what keeps it coming back. I think the, the reason why there's 11 sequels or whatever there is, is because there is an energy. There's something, and like I said it before, like it's schlocky, but that doesn't mean it's bad. I was able to watch it. I've watched way worse movies. This movie is not bad. It's just not, I think it's like put it back in the oven, let's cook it from, for a little bit more time. But I think there's enough stuff in it and there's worse movies that have gotten sequels you know, to see what this is, but it's, you know, I think I even heard, you know, people referring to Pinhead as a slasher. I don't think of Pinhead as a slasher. I don't think that that's what, it's not a slasher film, but I don't know. It's, it's a,
1: I don't think of him as maybe, maybe in some of the sequels, which I haven't seen at all, except for two.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow. You've seen a lot. But, Uh, But anyway, I mean, look, I think it's fun to talk about movies like this. I think it's interesting to see, you know, I think we both enjoy, movies that make us think differently and show different things. And I I would be remiss if we didn't like if we only talked about the best of the best. And I even think even what this conversation brought out between us is really kind of fun. Because it is like, oh, I like to pick apart and go like, Well, I have a little bit more respect for the movie now after this conversation than I did coming into it. I still have the same opinion that it didn't get to where it needed to get to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, and that's why I'm putting it on the list. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't get these people. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, maybe from here we should go someplace a little bit more fun.
2: Okay maybe a wisecrack a joke in here we've been very joke light the last couple of weeks i mean we went from uh <laughs> like we went from like heat to dark night to uh Midsommar, uh yeah. and to this i i feel like we we need someone to have a, a sense of humor here we
1: do i mean barker thought there was some humor in here there's a there's a quote he says that i love um Where he's talking about like seeing Frank in the naked skin suit, smoking a cigarette. And he's like, you know, there's a a sense of camp and kitschiness in the sheer excess of Frank sitting in the suit with the cigarette looking like Betty Davis.
2: I appreciate that. (laughs) Put it right next to Robocop (laughs) playing a trombone.
1: (laughs) This might be my secret way of saying, I do want to see the idea that maybe we should do whatever happened to Baby Jane. Mm. But, but there's a movie we've been talking about doing forever. And we... I think it's time. I think it's All time right. we finally do it. I think we should do Jennifer's body. What do you say?
2: I say, yay. Let's do Jennifer's body. Take a listen to the trailer.
1: You and me are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay?
2: You always do what Jennifer tells you to do.
1: It's just that I like the same things that she likes. Hey, Jennifer. You look really pretty.
0: Why don't you just come by my place? That was random.
1: This isn't really her house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way.
0: We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately.
1: How is he tasting
0: these days?
1: You are never a good
0: friend. You could have anybody that you want. I chip. You're killing people. You no, know, I'm killing boys. I'm very scared. Thought you only murdered boys. I go both ways. I will finish
1: you if I have to, okay? You can barely finish gym class.
2: You can get Jennifer's body wherever you stream your films, and uh, check your uh, local public libraries' apps; they can get that to you for free as well. Amy, great talking about our friend Pinhead, and I can't wait to talk That's about a, Jennifer's a, a, body. Hell priest, hell priest. Oh, right, right, hell priest. Got it. And Butterball though, same, didn't change that name at all. <laughs> uh, a big uh, thank you to our producers, Josh Richman, Devin Bryant, our engineer Ryan connor our producer molly reynolds i also want to give a shout out to rt public store because we have uh, sales going on there shirts are in there uh someone p- uh, pitched a shirt uh to us what if we took um florence Pugh's head and put it on tie fighters and uh so it's basically a tie fighter uh wings florence Pugh's head and had them flying at each other and just said pew 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 because, oh my god! Uh, that
1: took me so long to understand where that was going.
2: Yeah, I kind of like that one. <laughs> uh, so if you all want that, uh, let us know. We will. We will. Uh, we can make that. Uh, all right. So next week, join us for Jennifer's body.